As Jeff said, I am working on a funny voice. I've been dealing with this all weekend, so I do apologize. I know it's painful. Um, believe you, um, uh, it's not just painful for you. It's painful for me, but after this, I get to crash, so I'm excited about that. Um, one thing I just wanted to add before I get started is um, we're going to do Q&A kind of later on tonight. And so if you've got some questions while I talk, I'd encourage you to just write those down so you don't forget. And if, if we can do the Q&A time a little bit later, uh, then you'll be able to remember what you wanted to ask. We want to talk about um, the who before we get started, but I don't want to assume, if we're going to call this modern-day Samaritan, I don't want to assume that we're all super familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, maybe it's been a while since you've read it, and maybe you're well familiar with it, but I thought we'd start by reading it together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you, go and do likewise. We're not going to unpack everything that we could um, from this amazing passage. There may be a lot you heard in Sunday school a long time ago, or there may be a lot you've um, learned as you've just studied that passage on your own. Today, we just want to focus on one thing, and that's the who of this story. Each of us gets to live out this Good Samaritan story in some way or another, multiple times throughout our lives, often multiple times throughout one year. And and so understanding that man of the Good Samaritan story for you is really key. Why, Why does that matter? Well, one, I'd say, until we understand the who of poverty, we're not really going to care about those who are facing um, poverty. Uh, we might not have compassion if we don't understand some of the underlying issues there. Understanding the who also helps us help best, like Jeff alluded to a second ago. It, it helps us know what's really needed, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. So in, in those weeks to come, we're going to talk a lot about how we can be like the Samaritan, but today we're going to understand the man of that story. Understanding the who plays out in different ways throughout our life, right? So if you want to be a good parent to your kid or disciple your children well, you have to know them, right? You have to know their particular challenges. You have to know what makes them tick the way they do. If you want to be a good boss to employees, again, you have to know the who. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to speak generally about those in poverty tonight, and um, I, I know that these are generalizations. I also am going to speak generally to those of us at Watermark who 
um, may kind of fit that middle class mindset. But, but we really recognize that there may be people in here from across the socioeconomic spectrum. So we don't want to assume anything. But at the same time, we know what, you know, who God seems to have brought to Watermark. And so um, don't be offended by that. Just know that I'm, I'm trying to keep things general because that's what we have to do. First thing we need to know about the who of poverty is that locally it's a whole lot of people. Um, if you look at these stats up here in Dallas, where there are about 1.25 million people total, 24% of people live in poverty. Um, the poverty line there, you'll see, um, depends on kind of the federal guidelines you're looking at, depending on um, the federal entity you're looking at. It's anywhere from twenty-two dollars to $24,000 household income per year for a family of four. So if there's more kids, that poverty line would move up a little bit. If there's fewer kids, it would move down. But, but that's where they consider the poverty line. 24% of Dallas lives under that line. 38% of the children of Dallas are in houses that are under that line. Uh, since 2000, we've had a 41% growth in the poverty rate in Dallas, but we've only had a population growth of 5%. Almost half of Dallas is low income, um, less than 185% of that poverty line. So that's quite a ways up, but almost half of Dallas fits under that line. 39% of Dallas households are asset poor. Asset poor means that it's a family that if, if they were to lose their jobs, they don't have enough savings or access to, to wealth or to resources of any kind to be able to make it for more than three months. So 39% of Dallas households and 45% of homes with children would fit that definition. And then 32 neighborhoods are considered concentrated poverty areas. Uh, Lest you think this just applies to Dallas proper, 19% of individuals live in poverty in Dallas County. So it shows us that there are a whole lot of people. Don't worry, it's not going to be stats like this, but I did want to put that in front of you um, as we get started tonight. So how do people end up here? Yes, um, sometimes it's because of their choices. Oftentimes their choices play into it. But I imagine you come with different expectations tonight. You may say, well, this is a church, so uh, they're probably going to tell us that it all ends up having to do with sin in the person's life. Or you may say, well, this is a church, so they're probably going to act like it's not the person's fault at all, and there's all these other factors involved. We're not going to tell you either over the next five weeks. We're going to say that it's, that it's tricky, that there's choices, but there's also a whole lot of other factors. Yes, there are sin issues involved in people's lives that get them into poverty or keep them in poverty, but there's also a lot of other factors. Here are some of those. Um, bad choices by others, so sinful choices by others in their lives. Maybe that's parents, even choices they made well before somebody was born, or even further back than that, grandparents or great-grandparents. It may be community members who break the law or who are con artists that create this situation for them. There may be bad choices by those in various systems, like government, who, who create a situation that makes it hard for them to get out of poverty. Um, It may be economic factors. That can include things like the recent recession. That can include property values going crazy in a a various neighborhood. Uh, It can include other changes that are unexpected but that create or sustain an impoverished situation. Geography has a surprising amount to do, and you'll hear some other ways we talk about that tonight. But geographic factors can really affect poverty where you live if you don't have access to health care. 
if you don't have good access to good jobs, if you don't have access to food. I've learned a term since I came to work at Watermark. The, the term is food desert. It's an interesting deal. It means there's these areas of town, including Dallas, where you just don't have access to very good food, to some grocery stores or other places where you can get the kind of food that a family really needs. A correlated term is food swamps, where you may have access to food, but it's the kind of food you can pick up at the 7-Eleven. It's junk food. It may be cheap um, in certain places, but it's not, and it may be high calorie, it may be high carb, so it kind of sustains in some sense, but it creates unhealthiness long term. Um, so that's geography affects that. Education access obviously hurts. If you don't have access to a good school or to good teachers, maybe um, it's a situation where there needs to be some remedial reading, for instance. If you don't have access to that, um, it's really going to affect your ability to get out of poverty, or especially in the case of special needs. If you don't have access to that kind of education that's needed, that's going to hurt you and you hurt your family. Political instability or corruption. This may deal more with international situations, especially the instability part, but there can be political corruption in our own backyard too. And then even environmental factors, whether it's an earthquake in Haiti or it's a Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, um, those kinds of things can create or sustain poverty for people that go well beyond just their own personal choices. Um, I was a psych major at Texas A&M, and um, one of the things we learned that's basic enough that they call it fundamental, the fundamental attribution error in psychology is the tendency that humans have to look at somebody else and assume that whatever their choices are, that it's because of something internal to them, that we have a, pro- we have a hard time thinking about the situations that might cause that. There's another error we make called actor-observer bias, and sorry to nerd out for a second, but actor-observer bias is the opposite. We tend in our own lives to look at ourselves and think all about the situations and not think enough about what internally is causing us to make bad choices or to be in a bad situation. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about it, though, as loving your neighbor as yourself. In mere Christianity, he, he says he believes that that term really deals with the fact that we do tend to give ourselves a break. When we think about what we've done, even in times we know we've messed up, we tend to be pretty quick to forgive ourselves, to um, just accept that there were factors and other things that led us to this. And so loving our neighbor as ourself means that sometimes we're willing to say, hey, there may be part of this that is their fault, but we're also going to recognize that there could be a lot of other factors going on here. Another thing that's good to understand as we go through this course is generational poverty versus situational poverty. These are very different scenarios and very different populations. Generally, in this, in this course, we're going to be talking about generational poverty, the kind of poverty that is sustained over multiple generations, rather than the kind of poverty that just comes on someone because of something like a Hurricane Katrina or whatever. Um, but it's always good to think about those two different things. And as you deal with various people, ask yourself, are they facing generational poverty or is this situational poverty? It's also helpful, as, as we go through tonight, for you to say, okay, Someone facing generational poverty may have grown up dealing with choices that were made long before they were even alive. In the same way, many of us in this room have what I might call generational provisions. That there are things about our lives or things um, where we were really set up. 
You may not feel like you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, as the saying goes. You may not have been born into wealth exactly, or at least as we in America tend to define that. But for most of us in this room, we are probably born into a situation that helped us out along the way. So as we think about what sometimes people lack, it's healthy for us to think about how we didn't lack that stuff um, as we were growing up, or even now we may not still lack that stuff. Lastly, if we're talking about the who of poverty, we need to remember, like Jeff said, that, that people who are poor are people first, that they were made in God's image. It, it's really good for us to remember that they are far more like us than they are different from us, that they're dealing with more obvious ramifications of their struggles than some of our own struggles, but that doesn't mean that their struggles are even particularly more evil Um, They're just more obvious. Um, I I read a good quote as I was kind of researching for this talk, and it said it's easy to be angry at the sins of the poor because we're not committing those sins. Um, It it also said it's easy for us who are kind of middle class or or who don't consider ourselves wealthy wealthy um, for us to be angry at the sins of the rich because, again, those may not be the sins you're particularly tempted by. Um, We've got to be fair in this. We've got to recognize that people are much more like us than they are different from us, even if their situation seems very different, and that they are ultimately made in God's image. So we have to decide we're going to begin to train our minds to have compassion. Um, An example that came to mind today as I was prepping um, is me being sick. Me being sick, you may or may not, you know, have compassion on me. If you know me, maybe there's a little bit of you that says, hey, I I care. I'm I'm sad he's feeling that way. I'm sad he's he's struggling here. Um, But maybe what if I told you I haven't been getting good enough sleep recently? Or what if I told you my, my diet's been really bad and that's probably what led to this? Or if I told you, you know, I'd, I'd never got a flu shot this season and I didn't get some other things that might have prevented this? It gets tougher in some sense to have compassion on me, but at least for my friends or my family members or whatever, they're still likely to say, well, I I care about that. I, I, I hurt for him that he hurts, even if what he did led to some of this. And I'd say that's a good target for many of us as we think about the poor, is to say, can we get to that place of compassion even when we realize that some of this is caused or sustained by the sin in their lives and bad choices they're making? After we talk about the who of poverty, we want to really define poverty, really hit the target on what we're talking about over the next several weeks. Um, I had a great little video to show you. Um, It is, for some reason, not working, and we tried lots of different ways. But it comes pretty directly out of When Helping Hurts. It's by the When Helping Hurts guys. You can see the full video if you want to use that URL that I've got there. But I just wanted to read you really the key of this little part of this clip um, that I was going to show you. And it, and it talks about how the World Bank had done a kind of an international survey of the poor. We in North America tend to define poverty as lack of material things or of some material thing. Um, but people who are in poverty worldwide describe it a lot differently. So let me read some of these to you. Uh, someone in Moldova said, For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. 
Somebody else said, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. I'm not well when I'm unemployed. It's terrible. In Latvia, someone said, during the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness, and a sense of low self-esteem. In Uganda, someone said, when one is poor, she has no say in public. She feels inferior. She has no food, so there is famine in her house, no clothing, and no progress in her family. In Cameroon, the poor have a feeling of powerlessness and an inability to make themselves heard. In Senegal, your hunger is never satisfied, your thirst is never quenched, you can never sleep until you're no longer tired. And in Vietnam, if you're hungry, you will always be hungry. If you're poor, you will always be poor. Then the book goes on to say, we have conducted this kind of exercise in dozens of middle to upper class, predominantly Caucasian North American churches, asking church people what they thought poverty was. In the vast majority of cases, these audiences describe poverty poverty differently than the poor in low-income countries do. While poor people mention having a lack of material things, they tend to describe their condition in far more psychological and social terms than our North American audiences. Poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. Yes, um, poverty is a lack of resources, and that includes financial resources. But that's not all it's a lack of. And that's what I want to help us understand in the next few minutes. The little Lego head on the right indicates emotional resources. And honestly, emotional resources may be the number one resource that people need if they're ever going to get out of poverty. But for those in poverty, there's often a lack of those. Uh, For instance, they need the emotional resources to move out of bad habits, to withstand stretching moments, and to persist even in a brand new environment. If they are able to, to gain some traction on getting out of poverty, can they persist? They need emotional resources. They also may have lacked bad role models. I mean, they may have lacked good role models or have had even bad role models in this emotional resources category. Next up is learning resources. Uh, This is education, both formal and informal. Uh, Many of us had people, mentors or disciplers or just teachers who took us under their wing. Plus, we had educations that formally that set us up to be in a good place in our lives. Many of those in poverty don't have those kind of resources. Spiritual resources obviously can help someone get out of poverty because it offers a purpose and a person who cares for us and helps us. Um, those in poverty or those in, in impoverished neighborhoods may not have the option to find really good spiritual help. Um, certainly, there are great pastors and great teachers and great parents in impoverished neighborhoods. But in other cases, there may be charlatans or there may be people who mean well but don't have the training to provide good doctrine. And so sometimes spiritual resources are hard to come by. Physical resources, um, represented by the apple. Um, Lack of nutrition, like I already talked about, um, which can create health issues, which can create some other things. And then finally, relational resources. 
a, a support system for helping with needs. Sometimes those in poverty lack the relational resources to just make it through life. If something goes wrong, they don't have people to turn to, or they don't have people who can, in a sense, sponsor them to help get them to the next level in their lives or to help them navigate what really are sort of hidden rules if they try to move up into kind of a middle-class environment or move into a job that they're not really well-equipped for. If they don't have people to help with that, um, they'll often fail. And so it's lacking those kind of resources. Financial resources do matter, obviously, to this. But financial resources, in a sense, may be more important for keeping the middle class or the wealthy out of poverty than they really are for helping those who are in poverty get out of that situation. It's attributed to Johnny Carson that he said, the only thing money gives you is the freedom of not worrying about money. Um, And in some ways, it's true that those who are in poverty don't need money so much as they need these other things to be able to take the steps forward to get into a better situation. Um, Again, like I said, remember these sorts of things that you had from the outset of your life, or even if it wasn't from the outset that you had access to, that those who just by means of where they grew up or the the family they were born into um, didn't have the opportunity to have those same resources that you might have had. Another great way that I've come to think about the poor, and and especially their daily sort of life, um, is best described as a web. Those who aren't in poverty often can look at their life like almost like slices of a pizza, that every slice doesn't hinge on every other slice. Here's what I mean. If um, my car breaks down, that's a big bummer for me, and that's not easy on our family. But there's a good chance that I can call somebody for a ride. There's a good chance that I can, you know, get on my iPhone and dial up Uber and get them to take me to work if I really need to do that. I can make it. Um, my family has two cars, and so my wife can take me or, or whatever. That, that that lack of transportation pinches, but it doesn't mean I can't get to my job or I can't get to health care or I can't get to some other things. Um, but for the poor, it's often not like that. That their, their daily life and all these different resources really do provide a sort of web that if one thing drops out, it, it can really affect the other things. Uh, so, for instance, let's say... Um, you don't have a car to get yourself to where food is cheap enough to get the healthy stuff or, um, or, or even just that available. So you deal with what you can, um, but that affects your health over time. So it goes from car to apple for the food up to the little doctor symbol up there at the top. Um, that affects your health. Well, then you not having health in, a, in poverty, that may really affect your job either you may not get paid for the days you miss, or you might lose your job altogether because of the situation you're in. And so if you lose your job, well, that affects your housing up there at the top right. You might have to move in with somebody. You might have to move to a cheaper neighborhood. You might have to do something. Well, that can affect your, your safety, represented by the gun with the slash through it. And if that affects your safety, well, then that certainly is going to affect your sense of well-being, your ability to rest and relax, um, represented by that beach ball down there. And if you can't rest, well, then that goes back to affecting your health. So that's just an example, but that all these things can be intertwined in a pretty crazy way that most of us don't have to think about life like that. 
But, but again, to go back to what when Helping Hurts talked about, this idea that it is so psychological to be in poverty, this is a big part of that. It can be so overwhelming because if you don't have somebody to watch the kids, then you can't go to the doctor to get the health care you need. Or if you don't have um, somebody that can loan you their car, then you're not going to be able to get to your job that day. And you might not have a boss who's real understanding about that. Um, so this idea of this web is, is, like I said, really helped me in understanding really what poverty can mean for someone. Finally, I wanted to describe one other model, and this is how one book describes sort of the outlook of the poor on life. You may not agree with everything here about what it says about those who are poor or middle class or wealthy, but I do find it helpful to think through some of these different categories. An easy one is food. This book talked about and it's down there at the bottom. It's this What Every Church Member Should Know About Poverty, which I do, do feel is a pretty helpful book. But with food, those who are in poverty might just be able to ask, did you have enough? That their concern is quantity more than anything else. Those who are in the middle class have the freedom to say, did you like it? You, they care about quality. And though, then there's a wealthy sphere above that who can say, how was it served? That that's what they may care most about. Prized possessions. For the poor, people and relationships mean everything. And that, that's not a bad way to look at life, right? But it's a lot because of the web and some of the other things we've already talked about. That they're really on the lookout for um, how can I gain people and keep the relationships that I have? Whereas middle class might look for things and the wealthy might be, able to, might be tempted to look and make their sole or their main focus this kind of one-of-a-kind one experiences or things. Time, and, and I'd say this is a real big one. Um, for those in poverty, their, their outlook on time is that it, it's all about the present. It's all about what's next. Survival is so key to their mentality that, that they're really going to focus here on the present. And so what does that mean? That means when they get money, they're likely to use it now. doesn't mean they use it badly, but it, it might mean that they don't really think about saving it. They've never had role models that have taught them that. Um, feelings or impulsivity can drive their interactions because, again, that's the situation they're in. They might have a difficulty identifying and, or considering cause and effect or consequences um, that they might not have had parents that have taught them to do that or never had a situation where they could really say, okay, I'm stopping to think about that. It's, it's more about the present and what they do here. Similarly, their place is all about the local. They may not have ever traveled out of their own neighborhood, and they certainly don't think of themselves as, as being citizens of Dallas as much as they are citizens of their own neighborhood. Their destiny, even for those who um, would say they believe in God or, or have a religion, they may still see their life as really determined by outside forces, by chance or, or by other people, and there's not a lot of chance they have to um, experience anything different, even if they were to try to make choices that that just doesn't really compute if they've never had a situation where that made sense in their life. Um, the language one is, again, just kind of fun, but if you think about your life being about survival, the idea that if you go down to work um, with people at Brother Bill's Helping Hand, for instance, that they may talk in a casual register, what's called casual register, um, it, it shouldn't be surprising if that's all they've ever needed to do to survive. Um, 
And that's really helped me to kind of think about, okay, those differences I see, there's reasons for that. It's not just lack of education. It may be something even deeper than that. So finally, I want to talk about the roots of poverty. Um, We've talked about the who. We've really tried to define what poverty is when it's experienced, not just a textbook definition, but really how people who are poor experience poverty. Finally, I want to talk about the roots of poverty. If you ask kids, um, well, I'll say that in a second. Let's, Let's look at this. This is the way things were meant to be, and this comes right out of that When Helping Hurts book. Um, if you can see it on your, on your handout or if you can see it up there, the idea is basically that everything's in harmony. If Adam and Eve had not um, sinned and sin never entered the world and they begin to have babies and ultimately we had all these systems and people and um, that everything would have been in harmony, that for each individual they would have been in harmony with themselves, in harmony with others, in harmony with the rest of creation. And all the systems, economic and social and religious and political, would have worked together as God intended. A a biblical word for that is shalom. And yet, there was the fall. And um, if you ask a kid... Who's, who's learned about the fall, what did the fall affect? If you just say, hey, hey, what, what did it do to the world or what all did it affect? He's likely to tell you everything. But we grow up and we, we, there's kind of this divide a lot of times among those who call themselves Christians that those who maybe are on the more liberal end of the spectrum might tell you, oh, the fall affected systems. It affected things like government, and and that's why the poor are poor, because the fall affected these outside factors that oppress them. Those who are on the more conservative end might be tempted to say, the fall affected people, and it caused them to sin, and that sin led to all these bad situations. But like I told you, we're not going to land in a simple answer on either side. It's much more complex, and we'd say again, the fall affected everything. And I I really think that's useful to realize that everything is broken, or as you might say it, um, everything is busted. Sometimes we have sort of a Pollyannish view about how things are, and so we're shocked when our government does something we we don't want them to do or does something we don't think is right, or when something goes wrong with our health or something goes wrong in our workplace or something goes wrong in systems that we look at in the world. But we've got to remember the fall affected everything. Nothing um, is ultimately going to be made quite right um, until Jesus returns. And so if that's true, it affects individuals too. And like this shows, there's all these effects that everything is broken. Their relationship with God is broken. Their relationship with themselves is broken. Their relationship with others is broken. Their relationship with kind of everything else is broken. And certainly they're, they're, how all these systems come together is not shalom anymore. And, and so like I said, for some of us, the way this works out in our life isn't in poverty And it's not as obvious as what you might see in South Dallas. But it still works that way in our life too, right? That all of us are broken and we we live in broken worlds and in broken families and in broken neighborhoods and in broken jobs and in a you know in a church full of broken people and there are great glimmers of hope and of Christ's kingdom kind of interfering with that brokenness, but it's not gonna be quite right. Well, those in poverty are are in a particularly obvious way showing us that the world is not quite what it should be. 
Um, one thing you'll, you'll read if you read um, the homework in When Helping Hurts, uh, it, it says that ultimately poverty is less about financial resources than it is about broken relationships. Again, that idea that people's relationship with themselves is broken, their relationship with others is broken, their relationships with the rest of creation is broken, and it has led to poverty in their life and in other people's lives. So let's go back to the Good Samaritan, and then I'll close up. I'm not going to reread the whole thing, but I, I just wanted to make a few notes on this. First of all, I think it's we got to notice that Luke is telling us that this guy wanted to justify himself. But he, desiring to justify himself, Luke tells us, um, he's trying to limit here. He's trying to say, okay, so if I'm going to keep this rule, tell me exactly who is my neighbor. I'll come back to that in a second. Another thing to notice in verse 30 is it just says a man. Uh, there's a real rhetorical power in making this m- person nonspecific. Jesus doesn't even say he's Jewish, although that's assumed. It just says a man because the point of Jesus' story is not the guy. is not the guy who fell into the hands of robbers. The point of Jesus' story is the response of the three individuals. Another thing that I think is really interesting to note, and as I looked at different commentaries, this really popped out at me. It's that just like I talked earlier about this sort of generational deal and these different classes, the priest and the Levite were in different classes from the Samaritan or or from the man presumably who fell among the robbers, that they were born into these positions. We forget that. We you know, in our world, somebody who's who's clergy might be seen as somebody who worked real hard to get there, but that's not the situation they had. Um, if you're following along and join the journey, you'll find that real soon um, as you get to the place. And it's just a tribe of people, the Levites, and then certain members of the Levites who became the priests. And so for them, they weren't necessarily in, in a wealthy class, but they were in a higher class. And the people hearing this story wouldn't have said, oh my goodness, I can't believe they didn't help this guy. Many of them would have said, of course, they didn't help this guy. That because of their outlook on the world and because of what they were born into, they had a natural inclination not to defile themselves, not to get involved in that kind of situation, etc. We face that same temptation, particularly if we were born into a different class than the poverty that we're talking about in this course. And so I think... It's easy to say, oh, I want to be like the Samaritan, but we've also got to tell ourselves we don't want to be like the priest and Levite. Um, lastly, it's important to note that Jesus' answer to the man was not an answer. So he's desiring to justify himself, and he says, who's my neighbor? Jesus never tells him who his neighbor is, right? He comes back, and he, sa- and he asks a question, and it refocuses the whole thing. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he takes the man's question, who's my neighbor? And he says, who was a neighbor? And of course, he says, the one who showed him mercy. Um, this reminds me, the way this kind of works out is it, it reminds me of somewhere else where somebody else asked Jesus a question, Peter. And he says, it says, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. 
Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. But either way, Jesus' point, as you probably know, wasn't to say, okay, now start counting, just count a bigger number. It was to say, don't ask me how many times to forgive. Be a forgiver. Jesus' answer to the, to the man, to the lawyer, wasn't, don't ask me who your neighbor is. You be a neighbor. You be neighborly. Um, in one of the resources I used, they summed it up really, really well. They said, the story of the Good Samaritan shows that one cannot say in advance who the neighbor is, but that the course of life will make this plain enough. Indeed, the questioner, who at the end is told to do as the Samaritan did, is the one to whom the parable comes home directly. One cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that through the next few weeks, you would teach us what it means to be a neighbor in exactly the way you see fit for us to do. I pray that even now we'd just be changed by our understanding that we'd be moved with compassion like it says your own son was as he looked at spiritual poverty and he looked at other pains as he looked around him. Uh, God, I pray that we would be moved with compassion, not, not rejecting your truth about what's right and wrong, but being moved in love um, that we would care more about those who are poor. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.